Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Luke 7. Luke 7. Looking at verses 36 to 50 this evening, the title of the sermon simply, Love. Wisdom is justified of her children. These were the words we considered last time we were together in Luke. The idea of this phrase is those things or people born out of wisdom are validation of wisdom itself. Not everyone accepts wisdom, but that it is wisdom that is born out of the results that this wisdom produces. In other words, that as wisdom is acting, that which is born out of it is self-testifying. We talked about that last week. Tonight we're going to come face to face with more of this wisdom. Not just the wisdom of salvation or even love as, as our title would imply, but the wisdom of compassion. It's rather often we speak of sin at Legacy Baptist Church. The Bible has quite a bit to say about sin and understanding sin and the concepts of sin. It's foundational to understanding the gospel and how we have fallen short and what Christ has redeemed us from. It's also foundational to our success in this process of sanctification, which the Lord calls each of us to pursue as children of God. Yet, we must never forget just how loving and compassionate our Lord is And how integral this love and this compassion is, not only to the essence of the gospel, but to the very essence of God himself. We must never forget that Jesus came with a ministry of love. In fact, 1 John states it quite plainly for us when John writes in verses 7 and 8 of 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And he goes on to say in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. It is not that God is loving. It is not only that God loves. It is rather that when you are seeking transcendent truths regarding love, seeking to know what love is, seeking to define it so that you might understand it, uh, that God is the very essence of love. He is the definition of love. Everything that God is and everything that God does is love. If it is outside of God's character, then by definition it cannot be a part of what love is. If it is love, then it is by definition the essence of who God is. But we will not just see love today. We will see compassion. And indeed, compassion focused in two separate directions. Compassion directed toward one who is seeking and compassion directed toward one who has found. Tonight, we're going to learn much about our Savior and to know God is to love God and to love God is to obey God. So perhaps this evening, we will not just know Him more, but perhaps this evening, we will grow to love Him And obey Him more as well. Our passage begins this evening in verse 36 as we pick up where we left off last week. And we read this. 
And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. So our scene opens with Jesus entering into the house of a Pharisee to eat with him. This is uh, so interesting after what has just happened and so important for us to understand. Remember, Jesus had just had this Uh, We might say this conflict with the disciples of John the Baptist over his identity. It was a conflict which more than likely was in part by uh, compelled by Jesus's willingness to eat with publicans and sinners. Then as Jesus defends John the Baptist, he rebukes this generation because they rejected John for his asceticism and rejected Jesus for eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. Luke tells us that the people and the publicans heard him, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And yet here Jesus is, right? At the house of a Pharisee. There's no greater indication that Jesus did not have something against any class of people than this. He was just as willing to sit at meat with a Pharisee as he was to sit at meat with publicans and sinners. He didn't reject the Pharisees as a ministry simply because he accepted the publicans and sinners as a ministry. He was not a classist. He was not a populist. He was a prophet proclaiming the word of God and all who would come to him were welcome. Regardless. So Jesus sits down to eat at this man's house. Then something happens, and we read about this in verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. The text says a woman of the city, which was a sinner, comes to Jesus while he is sitting at the Pharisee's house. Now, when we think of her being a sinner, knowing the definition as given in the word of God of sin to be anything that we do, think, say, that contradicts God's character, will, or word, we might be tempted to wonder why this is such a big deal. Why is it even mentioned? After all, every man ever born, with the exception of Jesus of Nazareth, is a sinner. Why does it matter that she is a sinner? Why would it even be mentioned? But that's not really what the text means here when it says that she was a sinner in the city. When it talks about she being a woman in the city which was a sinner, those two phrases are very closely connected. She was a woman in the city and she was a sinner. Literally, we might understand this to say she was a sinner in the city. And from this, we understand her to be a prostitute, a harlot, a profession which would have made her repulsive in the eyes of the righteous, an evil woman by default in the eyes of the Jews, and without debate among any Jew of merit, the very worst that society had to offer. So this woman, the worst of society, a harlot in the city, enters into the house of this Pharisee. That's a big deal. And she brings with her an alabaster box of ointment. 
In history, we find alabaster containers filled with ointment presented to kings. And so we understand this to be a gift of significant material value. It was an expensive box. Now, this passage does not teach us about the expense of that box. Uh, We find in another passage, another alabaster box, a different alabaster box uh, of precious ointment, which is said to have been very costly. It is a different circumstance. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we might recognize here, and we should recognize here, that this was a very costly thing. This alabaster box of ointment. A significant material value. And she comes to Jesus, and she stands behind, or at his feet behind him, weeping. Guests in the Orient would remove their shoes before entering into the house. Then they would oftentimes recline, with their feet being somewhat to the side. So in this case, he was not necessarily sitting upright as much as he was most likely reclined and having having his feet off to his side. And so she stood behind his feet. And why would, why would it be mentioning it that way? How could she stand behind his feet? Well, if he was reclined, that would make sense, right? That she stood behind him over his feet he would have probably been off to the, his face would have been off to the side, and she is weeping. She was crying so profusely, the text tells us, that her tears were sufficient to wet his feet, which would have been dirty from walking in the dusty roads with sandals. And then she proceeded, after his feet had been moistened by her tears, to then wipe his feet clean with her hair. She then kissed his feet, and anointed his feet with ointment. This was an act of abject humility. In reality, it was an honor worthy of a king. It was unconventional in every sense. Now, before we move on in the text, I'd like to clear something up about this text. Various church traditions have stated that this woman is Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Bethany. Mary Magdalene will be introduced to us next week in Luke 8, verse 2, as a woman out of whom was cast seven devils. She will be one of the first women to see the risen Lord. Mary of Bethany was a friend of Jesus, sister of Martha and of Lazarus. She was, it would seem, a woman of sterling character, understanding of the scriptures, and devotion to Christ. Now, church traditions, various church traditions, have linked the woman of Luke 7 to one of these Marys, and particularly the Mary of Bethany. And the reason why church tradition has linked this woman in Luke 7, this harlot, to Mary of Bethany, is because we find a very similar account of an anointing, a breaking of an alabaster box, a wiping uh, with her hair, a very similar account in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 13, Mark 14, verses 1 through 9, and John 12, verses 1 through 8. And yet, what I contend this evening is that these three other accounts are Mary of Bethany, whereas this account in Luke 7 is a different woman. A different account. A similar circumstance, but a different woman from Matthew, Mark, and John. Those three being Mary of Bethany doing the act. This one being a woman who is unknown to us in name. And let's read the John account for context as far as this goes. 
In John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, we read this. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had, a, he had the bag. He carried the money. And bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. An account appears... Uh, this account appears uh, to bear striking resemblance to the Luke 7 account, does it not? Matthew 26 adds a few details. Matthew 26 adds that they were in the house of one called Simon the leper. Now this is significant because in Luke 7 verse 40, which we'll get to in just a few minutes, we find that the name of the man, the Pharisee, in whose house Jesus is, is Simon. So it's interesting, in Matthew 26, we find that they are both in the house of a man named Simon. In Matthew 26, it said he was Simon the leper. In Luke 7, it says he was Simon the Pharisee. We also find uh, several other resemblances uh, that that we can understand between these accounts. Four accounts, one in each gospel. In each account, a woman brings an alabaster box of ointment to anoint the Lord. In each account, the woman anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, in the Matthew and Mark account, it also speaks of anointing his head. In each account, Jesus is in the house of a man named Simon. They must all be the same, right? And if they were the same, then the identity of this woman, which is concealed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but is revealed in John, would be Mary of Bethany, the sister of of Martha and Lazarus. Except that these four accounts cannot all be speaking of the same event. In fact, what we will find is that Matthew and Mark are without question the same account. John is most likely the same as Matthew and Mark. And Luke simply cannot be the same account. It must be an entirely different account altogether. Now, we will not take the time to walk through the accounts and compare them verbatim and to compare them deeply. I have done this for you, however, on paper and on the back table, there is on paper the comparison of these four accounts and why they are different. But let me briefly discuss the differences between them, noting that I am combining Matthew, Mark and John together and contrasting them with Luke. So in the three gospels that are the same, I believe, Uh, This event takes place just days prior to the crucifixion. Here in John chapter 12, it said that it was six days before the Passover. This is the Passover of Jesus' death. On the contrary, in Luke chapter 8 verse 1, we'll read that immediately following this event, the event of this woman anointing Jesus' feet, he and his disciples are going to go throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't care who you are, you cannot go throughout every city and village preaching the kingdoms of God, the, the tidings of the kingdom of God in the six days before your death. 
particularly when he still has to do the triumphal entry and he still has to have the Passover and he still has to cast the people out of the, the, the um, money changers out of the temple. He's got a lot of work to do. He's not going around to all the cities and villages preaching the kingdom of God. They cannot be the same, the, the same event if both of these are true. In Matthew and Mark, the woman takes the ointment and the Bible says specifically that she poured it on his head. Now in John, as we read, it does say that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. Uh, but these do not have to be mutually exclusive. In Luke, it only speaks of Jesus' feet being anointed. In the three Gospels, the one who is upset over the act of anointing Jesus is Judas. And more generally, the disciples. The disciples are upset because the oil could have been sold for a great sum of money. And as Judas says, given to the poor, although really he just wanted it for himself. In Luke, the one who is upset is not one of the twelve, is it? In Luke, the one who is upset at this is Simon the Pharisee. And he was not upset because of the cost of the ointment. He was upset because of the character of the woman. Finally, in the three Gospels, we find that Simon is a leper. In Luke, Simon is a Pharisee. While it is possible, following healing by Jesus... That Simon the leper became Simon the Pharisee? It's very unlikely, isn't it? We'll find later in Luke 7 that Simon shows very minimal amount of courtesy to Jesus, doesn't he? He, had, he did not wipe Jesus' feet when Jesus came in. He did not kiss Jesus when he came in. Let me ask you this. Simon is obviously still, still skeptical about whether Jesus is a prophet. If Simon had been cured of leprosy, would he at all have ever been skeptical? I mean, would he still be skeptical of Jesus as a prophet? Would he actually say, if this man is a prophet, if Jesus had cured him of an incurable disease at the time, and then he had somehow been re restored to a position as a Pharisee? Very, very, very unlikely. You would think that he would have treated Jesus with the deepest depths of honor if he had been cured of leprosy by this man. So as we compare and contrast, we find that Matthew and Mark are without question the same event. The only discrepancy between these two accounts and John is the location of the anointing. John says that Jesus' feet were anointed. Uh, Matthew and Mark say that Jesus' head was anointed. We can get over that. There's, there's ways to get over that uh, logistically. Luke, however, is just too different from the rest. And we can be confident that the woman of Luke 7 is not Mary of Bethany. And as her name is not given in Luke 7, there's no reason to assume that she is Mary Magdalene either. The only reason Mary Magdalene is brought in is because of the John account of Mary, which isn't even Mary Magdalene, and then connected to Mary Magdalene because she had seven devils. So all of that just doesn't really make sense. All right, so uh, moving on. You, we, we are thoroughly convinced now that Luke is an account of its own, right? Let's move past that. In verse 39, we read this. Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman 
that is, this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. The event is unfolding uh, before Jesus' host, right? And this is a Pharisee. This is a Pharisee. He does not eat with publicans and sinners, right? Jesus eats with publicans and sinners. He does not eat with publicans and sinners. Jesus goes to the unclean. He does not go to the unclean. He looks at this and he said, he would have no doubt been appalled. Not only is this woman doing this, but she's in his house. She's in his house. In most cases, it being his home, we might even expect that he would have forcibly removed her. But it seems that he is far more interested in gauging Jesus' response here than actually defending the dignity of his guest. And the text tells us that going through his mind is this thought. If this man were a prophet, then he would know the character of this woman. He'd know who she is, he'd know what she is, and he would not let her touch him because she is a sinner. She's a harlot. A woman of no moral integrity. And this scene sets up an essential interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee, which begins in verse 40. We'll read through verse 43. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor, Jesus speaking again, which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. So Jesus asks this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, a simple hypothetical. Two men owe a creditor money. One man owes 500 pence. Another owes 50 pence. Now, the idea is this. Both of these were overcomable sums of money. We're not talking about the thousand talent type scenario here. These are overcomable amounts. And yet, one owes, and this is the point here, one owes ten times more than the other. Ten times more. It's a lot of times. And neither man is in any position to pay off his debt. They are both completely bankrupt. In this brief hypothetical, Jesus says that this creditor, frankly, forgives them both. He absolves them both of the debt. The man who owed 50, the man who owed 500. The man who had uh, 50, the man who had 10 times that amount. Both of them were absolved of their debt. And then Jesus asks the question, which one of those two men will love the creditor more? To which Simon naturally answers, The one who was forgiven the most will love the most. Makes sense, right? The one who was forgiven of 500 pence will naturally be more appreciative than the man who was only forgiven 50 pence. And Jesus says, that's the correct answer, Simon. Thou hast rightly judged. Really, a hypothetical could not be more straightforward, could it? While the creditor performed the same service for both men, the man who owed more was benefited more And so we would expect the level of appreciation on the part of the man who has benefited more to be greater in return. His love would be greater. And so we continue in verses 44 to 47. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. So he's turning to the woman. He's looking at the woman, but he's speaking unto Simon. And he says, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears. And wipe them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. 
My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. So Jesus now brings the contrast of his hypothetical into the real world and he links it. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? This woman who is weeping at my feet and kissing my feet and anointing them with this precious ointment. He says to Simon, Simon, I entered into your home and you didn't even give me water to wash off my feet. This was a common courtesy of the day to provide for a guest in your home water to wash his feet. They wore sandals, dust collected on their feet. But Simon did not even offer the common courtesy of the day. However, this woman, he says, her tears were pouring out and they fell on my feet sufficient enough to wash them and then she literally used her hair to wipe the dirt off my feet. Her hair is now dirty because my feet are clean. He says, I entered into your home and you gave me no kiss. In the Orient, a kiss is a sign of friendship. It's a sign of acceptance. Jesus is moving from the most basic courtesy. You could have at least washed my feet or at least given me something to wash for me to wash my feet to a reflection of honor. You didn't even, you, you didn't call me your friend. You didn't give me a kiss. You did not accept me. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. I entered into your house and you did not anoint my head with oil. Now, this would have been the great honor, right? This would have been uh, an honor for the greatest of men to enter your home, that you would anoint their head. Granting dignity to a guest of importance. He says, you didn't do that for me, but this woman has anointed my feet with precious ointment. And his conclusion is that this woman, whose sins are many, admittedly, she has not been a virtuous woman, but her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. And that this forgiveness has been evidenced in her love for Christ, the one who has released her. On the contrary, Jesus says, to the one who has little debt, who is forgiven little, well, naturally they love less, for they cannot appreciate the forgiveness nearly as much. Jesus' conclusion is intended to paint a contrast between how each of these people saw themselves and how it caused them to respond. The harlot saw herself as a great sinner, and so she responded with great repentance and love toward the one who had offered her redemption. Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, had lived a life in full accordance with the Old Testament law. He would kept the customs, he would kept the traditions, he would kept the rituals. He had been spared from a life of, that was ravaged by the more damaging external sins of the world around him. He had not been fully ravaged by damaging sins in that sense. Now we know that the Pharisee struggled with hypocrisy and self-righteousness, and we're not saying that those are any better in one sense, but we can say this. That a man who walks around avoiding the sins of the flesh but living in self-righteousness will not be as deeply ravaged by the world and by its sin. The people that, that I meet with in the jail every week, I may be struggling with more self-righteousness than them. I may be struggling with more hypocrisy than them. And I may in many states, in, in, in many ways have a, have a worse spiritual condition than them. But make no mistake, 
the drugs and the alcohol and the, the adultery and the fornication have ravaged them in a way that I have not been ravaged because I've avoided those things. So what Jesus is saying here is not implicitly that Simon is a more righteous man in the spiritual sense, but rather though he has not entered into the destructive uh, um, lifestyle of sinful choices, he sees himself as a generally good man and has by nature, because he sees himself as such a good man, very little appreciation for the one who has come to save men from their sin. That's the contrast. Simon the Pharisee is the man who owes 50 pence. The woman is the man who, or is, is, is the man from the, the hypothetical that owes 500 pence. Both of them cannot pay the debt. Make, make special note of that. Simon the Pharisee cannot pay his debt any more than the woman can pay her debt. But the woman's debt is greater, and make no mistake about that as well. Her mistake is greater. Her debt is greater. And they both have been forgiven. But the one has been forgiven more, so she loves more. Our text continues in verses 48 to 50. And he said unto her, that's Jesus speaking to the woman, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Now at this point he informs the woman that her sins have been forgiven. It's important to understand here that Jesus has already said her actions of honor of, uh, to Christ are an extension of her forgiveness, not necessarily an attempt to ask for forgiveness. She's showing honor and appreciation for the forgiveness which she has, of which she has become aware. This is her acting in response not acting in request. She did not come to anoint Jesus implicitly asking for her forgiveness. She came in to Jesus weeping because she felt the overwhelming burden of her sin already lifted. She came in with joy and she anointed him in joy. Based on Jesus' words, we cannot understand this any differently. Jesus' contrast here is not the response of two people needing forgiveness. It is the response of two people who have received forgiveness. And by this, we can probably understand that Simon the Pharisee had also come to uh, some acceptance. Yet for the sake of all watching, Jesus affirms to her that for which her joy had already compelled her to come, that her sins are forgiven. Now this has the expected effect upon those who were there. We don't know who all was there that day. But for the second time recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has proclaimed someone's sins to be forgiven. And the people yet struggle with the implications of this. For if a man can forgive sins, then that man must be claiming the authority of God. So they question in their minds. Jesus at, in, at, at this time does not respond to them. Instead, he looks at the woman with eyes of compassion, which we likely have never seen in anyone's eyes on this earth, but one day we will when we see our Lord face to face. And he says, thy faith has saved thee. And then notice those last couple of words. Go in peace. The one condition for which sins are remitted and salvation is secured is faith. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. When we, of our own will, exercise faith in Jesus to forgive us of our sin, we are passed from death unto life. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And in the place of these sins, God does not just leave an empty void, does He? In place of these sins, God leaves peace, inner, deep, and lasting tranquility, rest, and trust. And so he tells her, go in peace. What a wonderful account of redemption. And what an important lesson it teaches. A couple of applications this evening. Application number one. It's a question. Through what lens do you view sinners? Question number one. Through what lens do you view sinners? As believers, we have been spared, perhaps, for many sins, many mistakes. Some of us have not, saved later in life, have not been spared from as many as others. For some, these mistakes were made but are in the past. For others, these mistakes were never made at all. Either way, there's a tendency in the heart of believers, particularly conservative believers who live with a deep care for the concepts of personal separation and obedience to God, a tendency to see sinners as dirty, unclean, evil, to see them as the enemy, or perhaps just as the ignorant. There's a temptation to disdain them, or to turn down our noses at them, to want to reject them or mock them for their sin. A couple of weeks ago, just following the inauguration of our current president, there was a woman's march. This march was entirely ambiguous in intent, but if you did any reading on it or saw any reporting on it, you know that it revealed the most ugly, disgusting, and perverse people in our society which came together to speak and celebrate vulgarity perversion, nihilism, and lasciviousness. And if you were anything like me, that day made you angry. Angry to see so many people shaking their fist at God. Angry to see so many people brazenly declaring their love for sin. But what if we could see them another way? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed, from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul so greatly longed for the salvation of the Jewish people who had rejected Christ, who had sent Christ to the cross, who hated Christ. He so deeply longed for their salvation that he says, I could wish that I could be eternally separated from Christ for them. Men and women lost in the deceits of this world, blinded to the truth. Oh, that our hearts could break for our city, for our state, for our country. Oh, that our hearts would be softened to the pleas of their heart, manifested in their pursuit of fulfillment through those things which can never satisfy. Oh, that when we would hear their rebellion and their anger and their petulance and their hatred, that what we would hear is cries for help. That our hearts would be softened to those cries. 
They pursue luxury. They pursue adventure. They pursue activism. They pursue attachment, seeking to dull the pain of a spirit that is actively opposing its very creator. We live in a world of people that long so deeply to care about something, to have something to cling to, but have been so deeply indoctrinated and so profoundly believing that their lives have no eternal value. That now they have to cling to the very worst that society has to offer. They believe that murder is acceptable. They believe that sexual perversion is heroism. They must care about the trivial, the mundane, or the non-existent because they long to care about something. But they can't care about that which matters because they're walking in rebellion. Would that you and I would hear the cries of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. What we see is their rebellion, their perversion, their hatred. But if you are paying attention, what you will hear is a cry for help. Men and women holding signs, signing petitions, burning things, breaking things, hollering and screaming, but inside they're begging for the way of peace. Would that every angry outburst, every wicked or trivial march or protest, every hate-filled article or post or action would filter into our ears as a desperate cry for someone to love them enough to present to them the gospel. Would that we could love them enough that we could genuinely wish our own accursedness from Christ if only they might be found in Christ on the day of judgment. Through what lens do you see sinners? Far too often I fear we are not really that different from Simon who looks at somebody and says, if you knew what kind of woman she was, you wouldn't want anything to do with her. Ignoring the cries of one who is desperate for peace. Too busy seeing this world as filthy and rotten and sinful to see them as an object of God's grace. So the first question, through what lens... Do you view sinners? The second question, how much have you been forgiven? I don't know if Jesus' illustration and teaching was intended to imply that Simon had fully believed on Jesus or not. It seems as though that's the case. I mentioned that already. Although when he says, if this man is truly a prophet, we could wonder about that. But in Jesus' hypothetical, there's no question that both of these men, the one who owed 50 pence and the one who owed 500 pence, had both been forgiven, right? And I believe very firmly that this account is not meant to teach about a person coming to Christ, but rather about a love response of two people who have already come to Christ. And that means it puts it right in the ballpark of, of we believers. I was saved at a young age. I had some internally rebellious years in junior high and high school doing things of great evil, but none that led to those sins which we would normally 
and most deeply associate with regret. The extent of my experience with alcohol is NyQuil or mouthwash. The extent of my experience with drugs is the Percocet after I had my wisdom teeth pulled. My wife received my very first kiss on our wedding day. I am as much saved by grace as anyone in this room, but I stand at a natural disadvantage in my understanding of exactly what I have been saved from. Now, let me make a couple of very important disclaimers here. I am by no means saying that I am a better person. Uh, or, excuse me, I am no means, by no means saying that it is better for a person to experience the regrets of sin. So that he can understand what he has been saved from. This is not true. To whatever degree a person can be protected and avoid those sins uh, that lead to deep ravaging of their soul, body, and deep regrets, uh, he is a happier man or woman. Also, I am by no means saying that a person who has not experienced sin cannot love God as much as one who has. I'm not saying that. I am rather saying that it is more difficult for one who has been spared from sin to live under the natural motivation that redemption of a life from depravity presents. So with those disclaimers in mind, let me say this. As believers, our understanding of our sinful state is one of the primary motivations to live a life of zeal, of devotion, and of separation to God. There is nothing that a man is unwilling to do for one whom he perceives to have redeemed him. Yes, from the depths of a hell which we cannot even truly comprehend, but more specifically from the depths of the depravity under which you once lived. If you understand the deepest elements of your depravity, there, was not, there is nothing you will not do for the one who has redeemed you. And if I have no frame of reference to understand the depths of my own depravity, if I cannot think back upon the evil and the selfishness and the perversion, if I cannot remember the hopelessness and the emptiness and the destitution that rooted itself in my soul, then I will not benefit from the natural motivation to serve my new master with such zeal. Again, this does not mean I cannot do it, but I will not benefit from that motivation. Again, this does not mean it's better if I do the sin. Not at all. It's better if I can avoid the sin. But I will not have this motivation. I was talking to a man just last night. We had dinner together, and uh, he was saved a couple of years ago. And he was talking about his former life. Alcoholic. Um, ma- ma- many issues that the Lord has now redeemed him from. And as he was talking, he said he has a, a man that he was interacting with, and that man was saying he just plain doesn't understand how anybody can not be a Christian. And this man that I was talking to said that he explained. He reminded this man who had been a Christian for many, many years of the deceitfulness of sin. He says, I can still remember before my salvation He's only been saved a couple of years. He said, I can still remember how deceitful sin was. I can still remember how blind I was to it. I can still remember the ravages of that sin upon my life. I I, I can still remember that. And Lord willing, there will be a day perhaps where he won't. <laughs> where it'll, it'll just be like a bad dream. But let us never forget that there are those who have lived that life. The ravages of sin. And as I mentioned, the key is not to go out and live a sinful life 
in order to relate to God's great salvation. Rather, the key is to see the world so clearly and to see the world as God sees it so evidently that you understand your heart to be just as dark, just as wicked, just as perverse as the heart of the very worst men in history. Even if you never acted upon those impulses, within your heart is the same capacity as a Hitler, as a Stalin, as a Mussolini. Within your heart is the same capacity as the cannibal. Within your heart is the same capacity as anyone to do evil. And the key is to understand that the depravity out of which you were saved is the same whether or not that depravity ever manifested itself in your actions. And as you might expect, this is particularly important for our children. For the multi-generational Christians who have little frame of reference to relate to the devastation of sin. Parents, this is where you might be able to help. I would not necessarily advocate you airing out your dirty laundry to them, as they might, through a sinful tendency in us all, use the fact that you did you you were a sinner, you did horrible things, and yet things turned out all right for you as an excuse for them. But maybe find a faith-based homeless shelter and talk to some of those guys with your with your children. Maybe take them through the, a tour of the faith-based wing of the Lionel Lakes prison and let them talk to those guys who have suffered the devastations of sin and now who have been redeemed by Christ. Let them talk to somebody who's been saved out of that life who can still tell them about the devastation of sin. Now, some of our children may not even need such dramatic examples. Some of them may be able to simply watch a documentary. Some of them may have enough faith to simply read a book like Ecclesiastes and learn from Solomon's mistakes. But the key is this. We all need to come to grips with just how much we've been forgiven. It is the very foundation of our love for God. It is an essential factor in our motivation to serve Him. We could go on to many passages of Scripture at this point. We could go on to... Romans chapter 6 verse 19 or 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11 or Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 or Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 or Hebrews chapter 10 verses 22 and 23. But let me just read one passage to you this evening. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry. For which things, sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also... Put off the uh, put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says this, because of who you once were in the flesh, 
because of who you now have been made in Christ, because of what you will have one day in Christ, because God's wrath is still against evil, live for the right. Love God with all your heart, seeing He has redeemed you from such an existence, from such an eternal fate. Then serve Him with the zeal that is proportionate to the gift. It really doesn't matter whether or not your body and mind have been ravaged by sin. It really doesn't matter whether or not you have memories of sin and its ravages upon your spirit. Every man, woman, and child in this room has been forgiven much. And the better you can understand that, the easier it will be for you to love. And that brings us to our third point this evening. We will have a fourth point as well. Third point. Does the fruit of your life bear out a love for God? Does the fruit of your life bear out a love for God? Simon's actions were an expression of his love. He saw himself as a good man, whether he had accepted Christ as Savior or not. He saw Christ's contribution to him as minimal. And we know this because of the fruit of Simon's actions. He loved little because he felt he had been forgiven little. Not only did he not anoint Jesus like a king, not only did he not kiss Jesus in the common greeting among those who you would count to be your friend, but he did not even give him the common courtesy of guest. Now Simon had lived a life of great devotion. If you were to ask Simon to give evidences of his love for God, he would have likely talked about the hours that he spent memorizing the Pentateuch, the Torah, he, uh, the tremendous sacrifices that he had made in his daily life to honor God's law and to keep the tradition of his father. But though he had all these things which he did to establish in his mind his love for God, when God sat down at the table with him, he didn't even show him common courtesy. On the other hand, this harlot woman maybe had never memorized a verse of Scripture in her life. She did not keep the traditions of the elders. She was a woman of ill repute, lacking the very basic virtues of feminine dignity. But though she lacked so much, when God sat down, not just not at her table, not in her house, when God sat down in her city, she found him out and she gave unto him what very well might have been the very sum total of all the money that she had in the world. And I fear that we too often might act like Simon instead of like this harlot in relation to our response to Christ. We come to church, we read our Bibles, we say nice things to others, we erect our standards of our wills and our won'ts, of our do's and our don'ts, the places we will and won't go, the things we will and won't say. This is the context within which many of us live our lives, and that means some people under the sound of my voice might be doing these things whether or not they actually love God. Some do these things as an extension of their love for God. Others might be doing these things with a general ambivalence to God. You are like Simon, where you have all of your ducks in a row, and you have all of the, the trappings of the religious and the spiritual, but when God sits down at your table, you don't even wash His feet. Much less give Him water to wash Him Himself. For some, when I ask, does the fruit of your life bear out a love for God? You say, yes. As I look at the decision I make, the things that I do and don't do, my motivations, I love God so much that I do or don't do these things. Others, if you're honest with yourself, if you commune with your own heart, you don't say that. And there may be two groups of people in here that are more alike 
than different externally. But if Jesus were here, one of those groups would be anointing his head with the oil and the other group would not even have offered him a chair. And what I'm saying is this. Be honest with yourself. Would you ever conceivably spend your entire life savings on an alabaster box of ointment to anoint the feet of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you really have a heart that is ready to leap up at the call of your Savior and to go where He wants you to go and to do what He wants you to do, ready to give or to keep, to go or to stay, to open or to close, to stand or to relent? If you were to put yourself into this account, who would you be? Maybe, and this is best case scenario, maybe you would be a Simon who then anoints his head with oil. That would be best case, right? Maybe you would be like the harlot, anointing his head with oil. Forgiven much, love much. Or would you be like a Simon who doesn't even have the common courtesy to offer water for his feet? Or would you, are you, like a harlot who wouldn't even go seek out Jesus in the city? Is the expression of your life an expression of true and genuine love? Is it motivated by the doctrines of self-righteousness? Is it motivated by the doctrines of self-indulgence? Or is it motivated by love? Fourth and final point. No sin is too great that it cannot be replaced with God's peace. I love this. A harlot comes and weeps at Jesus' feet, an expression not exclusively, exclusively of repentance, but of joy for her sins which have been forgiven. A woman whose life was ravaged by sinful choices, her mind filled with the memories of sinful act after sinful act, and not just of her own sinful act, but of participating in leading others to fulfill their own sinful acts. And now she kneels at Jesus' feet, weeping for the guilt that had once oppressed her has now been lifted. The shackles of sin which had once ensnared her have been broken, not just unclasped, but utterly destroyed. All of that sin, all of that guilt, all of that sorrow, all of that fear, and it has been removed. And when she stands up to leave, she went in peace. She went in peace. No more did sin plague her. It's not just that she had forgiveness. She had peace. No more did guilt weigh on her heart. It's not just that she walked away having an idea of her redemption, but still feeling guilty. She left in peace. No more did the sorrows of life encompass her. She had peace. And no sin is so great that God cannot replace it in the heart of his child with peace. Have you ever received the provision for that peace by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior? By believing with all your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins, that you are a sinner, that there's nothing that you can do to reconcile yourself to God, but that's okay because Jesus, when He died on the cross, paid the debt for you. He paid your sin debt. He died on the cross. He was buried and He rose again the third day. When He died, He paid the price. When He rose again, He secured victory for you. And if you will accept 
that truth with all of your heart. Believe on it with everything that you have. That if you will accept the exclusivity of this gift, repenting of dead works, of anything and everything that you might be trusting in to get yourself to God, to please God or to get yourself to heaven, and trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ alone through faith in His finished work. If you have never done this, would you do that today? Could today be the day that you accept Christ as your Savior? That your sin can be replaced with righteousness. That your guilt can be replaced with peace. If you have accepted, received that provision for that peace by receiving Christ, my next question is this. As a believer, are you living in that peace? It is possible that Jesus can take the burden of sin from off your back, but you can turn around, pick it back up, and carry that guilt down the road with you anyway. It is possible, but it is not natural for you if you're a believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 1 John 3.20 tells us, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Jesus told the woman to go in peace. And his expectation was that the peace of God would rule in her heart. And indeed, we are called to do the same. I took you to Colossians already. Let's just read three more verses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Paul says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord and to the Lord, and whatsoever ye do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Listen, if you're a believer and you are not living this way, the way that I have just read in Colossians 3, there's a problem in your spiritual life. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian. I'm not saying you're living in open, open unrepentant sin. I am simply saying that you are not getting out of your spiritual existence everything that God has reserved for you. You're stuck in second gear when God has designed you to go and get into fifth. You are not living in the power that God has designed for you to live under. No sin is too great that it cannot be replaced with God's peace. And no life in Christ is intended to be lived outside of God's peace. What a tremendous passage of scripture we've read today filled with lessons that can really make us think. Question one, through what lens do you view sinners? Do you see them as anathema? Or would you be willing to be anathema for them? How much have you been forgiven? Do you see yourself as the sinner that you really are in the eyes of God? Or do you think you're a pretty good person and in in loving little you, or in being forgiven little, you love little? Does the fruit of your life bear out a love for God? If you were honest with your own spirit, would you really say that the things you do or don't do are motivated by a transcendent love for the living God? And then finally, not a question, a statement. No sin is too great that it cannot be replaced with God's peace. Are you carrying around a burden that God did not intend for you to bear? If the Holy Spirit has placed His thumb on something in your life, would you use this week to meditate on and to work with the Spirit of God through submission to becoming more like Christ on these issues? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. 
that the peace of God would rule in their hearts, that we would see the world as you see the world. As the songwriter said, for if once I could see the world the way you see, I just know I'd love you more faithfully. If we could see others and their sinful state and the sinner's hell that they are headed to, if we could see ourselves and the redemption that we have received in Christ, oh Father, if we could love you this way, I pray that the fruit of our lives does bear the fruit of love for you and that we would walk and live and operate in peace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.